All right. You're doing great. You're awake. I love it. I see coffee all over the room. That helps. I know. I always get mine on Sunday morning, too. Get me up and going. All right, I'm glad you're here. It is a great day to be here. It's a great day for Carolina Family Church because we are kicking off something that's going to go for the next 14 or 15 works, weeks. Sorry. All right, we'll see. We'll see how long it goes. Planning 15 weeks right now as we study through the Sermon on the Mount. And not only are we going to be studying it here, we'll be teaching the Scripture here in the, the service. And then in your groups during the week, you're going to be talking about application and what to do with it and how to break it apart and how to put it in place in your life. And so it is going to be a great few months, and I'm glad that you're here to start it off with us. All right, we are going to be talking about how to build your life on solid ground, the foundation on which everything is built. Um, And if any of you have ever done any sort of construction or building of any kind, you know that the foundation is the most important part of the entire building. If you don't get the foundation right, it really doesn't matter what happens above that. You're going to have problems if the foundation isn't the way that it's supposed to be. And so we're going to be looking at a sermon that Jesus taught, arguably the greatest sermon ever, ever given, and it's right at the beginning of his ministry. Right when he's getting started, he, uh, is, he's begun uh, healing people, gathering his disciples to himself, and he's begun teaching, and he's talking about this thing, the kingdom of heaven. And this is something that people can't really seem to get their heads wrapped around. What is this kingdom that he's talking about? How does it work? You know, when is it coming? Who, how do I get in? You know, that's a big question. And you can imagine that there's so many questions swirling around this kingdom. And he sits them down for this amazing sermon to lay the groundwork so they understand the foundation on which this whole thing is built. And that foundation is crucially important. And what he's going to talk about is not the logistics of how it works, not the, not the who's here and what's there and what it looks like and, you know, visually and all that. He's going to talk about the kind of people that will build the kingdom with him. He's going to talk not about things that are on the outside of us, but things that are on the inside of us, because ultimately that's where the foundation is. You know, uh, we think about this as parents. Any of you that are parents, you probably see this in action all the time. The foundation that you build with your children has a lot to do with what they end up building later on in their life, for better or for worse, (laughs) right? And we know as parents, sometimes it feels like maybe that's more worse than better, but nevertheless, there's a foundation that we set. It's It's the building of a child's character, and, and Jess and I talk about this all the time because we have three children, and uh, two of them are in middle school, and one uh, is in elementary school. And we've been working hard our entire lives to try, well, their entire lives, I guess, to try and build a good foundation for them, all right, to establish character in them, to be more concerned about who they are and who they're becoming than what they did or what they will do. More about what's happening in their heart than what's happening with their hands, okay? And it's very easy to get distracted and to think about what's happening with people's hands, like to what, what is on the outside of a person, what they look like, what our perception of them is, rather than what's on the inside. And Jesus is dealing with people who are trying to understand his kingdom, and they're looking at him as this religious leader of some kind, but the problem is their model of what a religious person looks like isn't what Jesus is. And so he has to take their preconceptions 
about life, about faith, about the kingdom, about all these things they've been taught and modeled through their entire lives. And he has to try and flip them over on their head, which is a hard thing to do because they've been steeped in this their entire life. These people that he's teaching, that he's talking to, have had religious leaders, and the particular group we often talk about are the Pharisees. They're at the, the head of the whole thing. Right? These religious leaders that these people had their entire life were far more concerned about what was going on on the outside than what was going on on the inside. They were concerned about obedience, about rituals, about rules, about perceptions, about all of that. But that is not what God looks at. God does not look at what's on the outside of a person, but he looks to the heart. So Jesus is trying to bring and to show them what this kingdom is going to be like, but he has to take their entire understanding of what faith and life and religious faithfulness and all of that is, what success spiritually is, and he's got to do a 180 on it. And so it's going to take a lot of teaching and a lot of instruction, and uh, some people are going to get it, and a lot aren't. But the Sermon on the Mount is like the tip of the spear on this teaching because he said this kingdom is heaven. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, how does that work? Does it work the way the Pharisees have always worked, the way the religious leaders have always worked? No, it doesn't. And he's going to have to flip this thing over. And so he gathers, all these people are starting to follow him. And he's like, family meeting time. It's time for a sit down, son. Come in here, have a sit down, do a little pat on the bed, okay? Jesus goes up to a mountain and he sits down. And everybody comes up to follow him. All these people that are following him, they come up, his disciples, his closest ones, and everybody else who's following him, and they all come up and they sit down to listen to him teach. And he's about to take everything that they understand and flip it right over. And so some of the things, by the way, that we're going to talk about today and through this entire series are going to be difficult for us to grasp. Because over the course of history and the course of time, Christians and churches have taken this upside-down kingdom that Jesus established or that Jesus talked about and have just turned that thing right back over and have turned faith and Christianity into more what the Pharisees were doing than what Jesus was doing. And so we need to take that thing and we need to just take reorient, okay, back to what Jesus told us. That's what we're going to do through the course of this series. His kingdom is different. And at the end of this message, I just want to start with the end, and you'll talk a little more about this in your groups this week. But at the end of his message, Jesus tells a story or gives an analogy. He said there was a man who built his house on the sand. And when the storm came and the winds blew and the waves crashed against that house, that house fell. But there was another man, and that man chose to build his house on the rock. And when the winds came and the waves crashed against that house, that house stood. And Jesus said, anybody who takes these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the man who built his house on the rock instead of the man who built on, his, on the sand. You say, well, why would someone build on the sand? Because <laughs> it's easier. <laughs> That's why. And the pattern that the world gives to us of life and success and all of that is much easier than what Jesus teaches in this message. And so we need to choose what's harder and what's true, which are the words of Jesus here in this sermon. That's what we're going to do. And after, by the way, after Jesus finished this sermon, the people, they knew or they believed because they said, this guy, this guy teaches like someone who actually has authority. 
not like the scribes and the Pharisees. Like there is something to what he teaches. There's something true and deep and meaningful and right about this. And there's something wrong about all the other that we've been seeing. And so we're going to go for what's right in this series. We're going to build on solid ground as we go through this together. And we are going to establish ourselves firmly so that when the wind and the waves come, and they will come, they came against the man with the house on the sand, and they came against the man with the house on the rock. They will come. So when they come, we will stand firm. That's what we're going to be doing. And he talks in this sermon at the beginning of it about how to be blessed. And we need to be clear about this before we begin reading, that when he says blessed, he's not talking about external blessings, not the blessings that come from the outside in. Like somebody came and blessed me with an Applebee's gift card. Right? Arguably a blessing. I, I don't know. But, you know, so it's not that. The blessing he's talking about, there's two words for this in Greek, okay? There's a word for blessing that comes from the outside in, like someone, you know, blessed me with whatever, you know, from, from the outside. And then there's a word for this internal blessing. And it could easily be translated to the word happiness. He's so happy, fulfilled, content, blessed. That's what he's talking about. How, as we build on this rock, how we are going to be fulfilled and happy and content and blessed as we do that. All right. So with all that said, let's take a look. Um, and begin reading Matthew chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount covers three what we know as chapters in, um, in the Scripture. It's Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, which is what we'll be going through over the next few months. All right, so we're going to start in Matthew chapter 5. If you're new to the Bible, if you have a print Bible with you, it's mm, two-thirds of the way through or so. All right, we'll get you in the ballpark. If you have it on your phone, you just click on where it says Matthew. All right, and then you click on the five, and that's going to get you there. I am treading water and giving you time to get there, all right, so that you can find it on your phones, your tablet, your print Bible, whatever. If you don't have any of those things with you today, you didn't bring a print Bible with you, and you didn't bring your phone with you because you don't want it to ring in the middle of service, we'll have it on the screen for you as well, all right? Hopefully, you've got time to get there by now. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Here we go. And seeing the multitudes... He went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, all right, time for the sit-down. Here we go. This is a section we often call the Beatitudes. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're just going to do these one at a time. Now, this is, going to be, this is hard for people to swallow. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You, you can imagine there might have been some people sitting there that were like, oh, no, 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 no. No, Jesus, that's, that's not it. That's not how, we know that's not how it works. Blessed are the strong in spirit, right? Aren't the people who are self-confident, aren't the people who are strong in spirit, aren't they the ones that are happy and blessed? I mean, we... we we live, in, we live in a culture that celebrates the human spirit, right? Aren't we all encouraged and built up? Don't we celebrate the human spirit? Don't we celebrate people who are strong? Don't we award and recognize and reward people who are strong? I mean, we just been, we've been watching the Olympics, right? Like the Olympics are a spectacle of the human spirit. Look how strong we are. Look how capable we are. Look how fast we are. Look how well we slide on ice. Which by the way, is all the Olympics are, by the way. Every single event, every single event is sliding on ice. 
right? Someone was like, oh, no, they're shooting. Yes, but you have to slide on ice in order to get to the target. So they're all, that's all it is. We celebrate the human spirit. People are strong and confident and all this. But what Jesus said is that blessed are those who are poor in spirit. People who recognize their own weakness. Now, the world, the culture tells us that we need to recognize our strength, but for, we need to recognize our weakness. If we want to be blessed and fulfilled, we have to recognize that we fall short. We fall short of the glory of God. When we hold ourselves up against him, there is no strength in us whatsoever by comparison. And it's not until we recognize that, that God can take that, take that humility and build on that, where we begin relying on his strength rather than our own strength. But first we have to recognize that we are not strong, that we are poor in spirit. We are spiritually impoverished. And, and Jesus is not talking here, by the way, about how to be saved. He's not there yet. He hasn't gotten there yet in his ministry. He's trying to help them understand the kind of character that is rewarded in the kingdom, the kind of character that God wants to see in the kingdom. But however, even though he's not talking about salvation, the truth is that at some point we have to realize we have to become poor in spirit and recognize that we need him, that we have sinned and we do fall short of the glory of God. And so we need him to save us because we can't do it on our own. There's a level of humility that we have to have. And when we humble ourselves before God in that way, and we recognize that Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sin, doing what we can't do for ourselves, then we can come to him in faith and say, I believe. Jesus, I know that I need salvation, and I believe in you for salvation. I believe you took my place on the cross, and I believe that you rose again. And only in that humility then can I come to a point where I realize that I need him. And once I realize I need him, I put my faith in him for salvation, and he saves me. But we have to be humble enough to get to that point and recognize that we can't save ourselves. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he says in verse 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I'm like, no, uh, if any of you ever mourned before, you probably didn't count yourself blessed while you were doing it. <laughs> I know I didn't, but Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Why would, why would somebody who's mourning be blessed? Well, mourning is the emotional outcome of spiritual poverty. It's not just knowing that we've failed and we've fallen short, that we're incapable. It's feeling it. Mourning is when we get to a point where we recognize fully that we need God. We, we recognize when we're mourning the frailty of life, the, the weakness of life, the fact that, that even as strong as we might think we are, none of us escapes death. And so in the face of that and in the face of loss, we recognize our deep need for God. And when we recognize our need for God and we go to God to fill those needs in our mourning, Jesus says we will be comforted. This word is so, so beautiful, the word that he uses, because it means to draw to your side. 
And that picture to me is, it's like, it's like when you look at someone and they're hurting and you can see that they're hurting and you have absolutely no idea what to say to them because any word that you might say would be completely insufficient. And so you just pull them in for a hug. So when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted, he's saying that when we mourn, when we've lost, when we're hurt, when we go to God in our need, that God draws us to his side, wraps his arm around us and comforts us. But that's when we're, when we're hurting, not when we're victorious and standing on a podium. He draws us to his side. Blessed are those who mourn. Verse five. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. God is going to give inheritance to his children, much like we do, but his inheritance is better than whatever we could leave to our kids. The inheritance he gives us is in the kingdom. He rewards us. And when he gives that inheritance, the greatest inheritance will be given to the meek, the gentle, the kind which is so backwards because we, I, do, I don't think I need to describe, like, it's not the way it works here. If, if, you look, if you look at the highest levels of power in our world, and our culture, they are not held by kind, gentle, meek people because that's not the way this world works. It's not the way that it's set up, okay? And so in the kingdom, the inheritance God gives his children in the kingdom goes to the kind, it goes to the gentle, goes to the meek. It does not go to the brash or the aggressive or the short-tempered or the violent or the dominant like it does here. The things that take you to the top in God's kingdom will not get you there here. It's the opposite. And so the meek shall inherit the earth. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. This is an ongoing message of Jesus' ministry. He says it over and over and over and over and over again. We talked about it last week when he was talking. We talked about hunger recently. We talked about the people who were following him who wanted a meal because he'd fed them with the fish and the loaves. And he turns around and he looks at all these people that are following him and he's like, hey, I get it. You're just here for breakfast. What you need to do is eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everybody's like, whoa, we didn't sign up for that. We are just hoping for, like, some waffles, you know. <laughs> and so a bunch of people bail on him, all right? A bunch of people bail on him. And he looks at his disciples. Like I said, we talked about this last week. He looked at his disciples. He's like, do you want to go too? And they're like, no, no, because you've got the words of life. And we're here with you. You're the Messiah, and we know that. All right? And so... This, this message that Jesus is constantly saying is that our hunger and our thirst, our drive and our passions, our pursuit should be for spiritual things, for righteousness, holiness, not for getting as much as we can for ourselves, which is a very worldly way of thinking. And this is one of the biggest problems with the religious leaders that these people were following is that they weren't hungering and thirsting for righteousness. They were hungering and thirsty, thirstying. That's not a word. They were hungering and thirsting. Is that a word? No. They were hungry and thirsty for recognition. That's what they wanted. 
They wanted recognition. They wanted everyone to look at them based on the way that they lived and the way that they spoke and to look at them and be so impressed with them. And they were more concerned with what was happening on the outside than what's happening on the inside. Jesus dug into them about this constantly over and over and over again. You're going to read a verse toward the end of Jesus' ministry where uh, there's a really interesting place where um, Jesus is challenged by three individuals. He's challenged by a scribe, uh, he's challenged by a Pharisee, and he's challenged by a Sadducee. And they uh, all come to him and they try to trick him with a question, and he buries all three of them. And then uh, Scripture tells us that nobody dared ask him any questions after that. They realized they weren't going to make any ground with him, it wasn't going to work. And so then right after that, Jesus like goes to town on the Pharisees, and he calls them hypocrites and broods of vipers, and he like lays into them for an entire chapter that we have in Scripture. You're going to read part of that in your groups this week because he talks about how concerned, how the Pharisees are hypocrites. They clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is dirty. That's their problem. And so this is the example that's been set for people who are following, and they think that if we do the right things, if we follow all the right rules, and if we live just like the Pharisees and we look just like the Pharisees, then we're going to be okay. But Jesus is saying, no, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not fixing the outside and keeping up appearances, but who are focused on what's happening here in their heart, in their soul. When your hunger is for attention or validation or recognition or respect or likes or followers, you will never be satisfied. It will never be enough. But if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, it will be. You will be filled. Verse 7. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. Now, he's not talking about salvation here. It's not like you have to forgive people to be saved. That's not the way that it works. But there is a consistent message in Jesus' ministry where he says, if you have a problem with someone else and you are unwilling to forgive them, then you have a problem with God. They go together. And as long as you are out of fellowship with your brother or sister, you are out of fellowship with God. Now, that doesn't have to do with salvation. I need to be really clear about that. Salvation is secured by Jesus Christ on the cross, not by our works. But as we walk through life, our fellowship with God and our fellowship with each other is at stake. And Jesus said that we should be merciful if we are to obtain mercy. Again, as we compare this to the way that the world thinks and the way the, way the world works, The world does not encourage us to be merciful. The world encourages judgment. All right. Yeah, you know what? You're better than that. They treated you that way, and you're right. You know what? Forget them. All right? Just walk away. They don't deserve it. They did too much. That's the way the world teaches us, not to be merciful, but to be judgmental. And Jesus said, blessed are the merciful. And this is maybe, this is maybe the hardest one of the list. At least I think it is for me, because <laughs> I like to be right. And it makes me feel good to be right. And maybe it's for you too. 
makes me feel good to feel like I didn't do something someone else did. And then to hold that against them. But Jesus told me to be merciful. And so if I want mercy, then I have to be merciful. And I extend mercy to others as an extension of God's mercy to me. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart. You know, we can fool a lot of people. We can fool a lot of people with the way that we talk, with what we, with what we think, with the actions of our life. We can fool people by the way we dress, the way we spend money. We can fool people by the way we spend our time and the things that we post on social media or talk to people about when we have an interaction with them. But never, ever, ever, ever will we fool God. He sees what's here. He sees past all of this. To be pure in heart is up to you. And you can fool everybody around you, but you can't fool him. And so this is a choice, a personal decision that we have to make to say, I want to be pure in heart. I want to to weed out all of the garbage that's corrupting this, this cancer that exists within my soul. And I want to root it out, not because it will mean anything for the way anybody sees me, but because it will allow me to see God to have fellowship with him. He says that we will see God. I don't know exactly what he means by that. I don't know exactly, but I, I get the, the visual of, of when we are pure in heart, that it clears up the, the corruption that exists between us. That those things that disrupt my relationship with God, like noise between me and him, or like grime, okay? I was, I was uh, working on a car yesterday. I was doing, ch- changing the brakes on a car yesterday, um, which is part of the reason I'm, Jeremy was like, why, earlier, he's like, why are you walking around like you got like a stick in your back? <laughs> I was like, it's because I'm an old man, and because I was on my hands and knees all day yesterday. There was one bolt on this car that was attaching the caliper that would not come off. It would not come off. And I couldn't, for the life of me, get it off. And I tried every tool that I had. And I ended up having to go to AutoZone to buy another tool so that I could go and actually do it properly. And finally, I got the bolt off. And I was like, how is this bolt so stuck? And I realized that the entire thing, every thread, had rusted, had corroded inside. And I had to clean that off. I had to clean it off so that I could get it to thread back in properly so that the next person who changed the brakes on that car wouldn't have the same problem I had. It's that corrosion. It's that rust. It's that thing that grows in our life because of sin that disrupts the smoothness, in a way, of our relationship with God. And we have to clean that off if we want to see him. And it's not just about our our closeness with him, but it's every single day when we are pure in heart, being able to see him, see him working. 
see him active, and to be able to, to follow him and be in that closeness with him. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. These are the peace lovers, people who love peace, not war. The term, uh, interestingly, the term pacifier is one of the, one of the definitions. Uh, and, of course, I can't hear the word pacifier without thinking about baby, you know, our, our babies. Because, man, when they would cry, when they would be, you know, when things were, were really, well, I was going to say when things were really acting up. But, like, it could be any time. Uh, when they would cry and they would be really disturbed and you take that pacifier and you put it into their mouth and they just, you know. And, like, it's like a light switch. It's crazy the way a pacifier works. And so I'm almost envisioning Jesus saying, blessed are the pacifiers, The people who step into a situation that step into life and they're like that pacifier in a baby's mouth. There's chaos, there's craziness, there's frustration, there's anger, there's disruption, there's all of this that's happening. And a believer who understands uh, their, their spiritual poverty and they are meek and they are humble and they are uh, pure in heart and they are hungering and thirstying for righteousness. Right? And they step into a situation, it's like the whole thing goes, because they are people who bring peace. Kind, gentle, pure people who bring peace and love peace. Peace that exists between us and God, people who promote that peace, and those who promote peace with each other. They shall be called sons of God. This is interesting. This is, this is one where Jesus says the outcome of this is people's perception of you. That people will look at you when you are a peacemaker and will go, what is happening with that person? Or if they know, they know. And they say, that is a child of God. The religious leaders that the people were following were not peacemakers. They loved strife. They loved argument. They loved judgment. They loved comparison. They loved to knock people down a peg. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. I would say this one, in in some ways, is a culmination of all the others. That all the others build on each other to turn us into peaceful people. And all the way through verse 9, these are all internal characteristics. These are all traits. This is a solid foundation. on which we're building. And then he turns to more external things in the next verse, in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not just those who are persecuted for any reason, people who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. And say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So here's the deal. Because we live in a world that values things this way, and if we put into practice the teachings of Jesus and all of these things that we just talked about, and we're going to flip that over this way, people who live this way in a world that operates this way 
will be persecuted for it. And so if we're choosing to build on a solid foundation, the rock of Jesus, and to live in the way that he has laid out for us here in this sermon, then we are going to be persecuted. And Jesus said, blessed are you when that happens. Happy should you be. That's a tough pill to swallow. (laughs) Like, I don't know about that one. (laughs) I was with (laughs) you. Right up until that, because when we're persecuted, happiness is probably the furthest thing from our mind. But it's not just when we're persecuted. It's when we're persecuted for his sake. When they, when they, he says, when they uh, say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake, which means to say that we know we're being faithful. We know we're doing the things that he says to do. We know we're being the person he said to be. And when that challenge comes, it should roll off our back like water off a duck. Be like, I get that that's happening because you value things this way. And so I'm expecting this to come. But I live this way. And so I count it joy when this happens because it means I'm doing the right thing. If I wasn't living the way that Jesus wanted me to live, if I was living the way everyone else lives, then I wouldn't be experiencing this persecution. So this persecution is actually evidence or confirmation that I'm doing things the right way. And he says, now why, he says, rejoice and, exceeding, and be exceedingly glad. Well, why, why in the world would we do that? Because, he says, great is your reward in heaven. We are preparing now for then. Not now for now. Now for then. So that the reward that comes when God gives us inheritance, when, when, when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom here, that our reward will be then, not now. And I feel like we talk about that every week because we have to talk about it every week because we need to remember it every single day, and we don't do this every day. So we just talk about it every week, and then every day we need to remind ourselves that we're not playing for now, we're playing for then. We're not citizens of this kingdom, although we kind of are citizens of this kingdom. We're primarily citizens of that kingdom then. And so we're looking forward. And even when we face persecution here for what we believe and being strong about who we're supposed to be, that we accept that as the natural course of action because we live in a world where Christ is not here and he is not king. But that day's coming. And so we're getting ready for that day. You know, I was talking earlier about the, the character development that we do with our kids, you know. Our goal with our kids is to prepare them for the, when they're out there in the real world, you know. And so we work on things now that, you know, may not even seem like a big deal now because it's a big deal then. We're trying to establish a foundation. And so Jesus is helping to establish a foundation. Great is your reward in heaven. Jesus gives the example of the prophets. He said, listen, the prophets that came before you. They were doing the will of God. They were speaking the truth of God, but they were persecuted constantly and killed. Why? Because the world didn't want to hear it. Because the truth of God is not uh, palatable to people who are of this world. And so the prophets were persecuted. They were persecuted by wealthy people. They were persecuted by kings. And guess what? They were persecuted by religious people too. The reality is that we live in even a church Christian culture that has flipped from what Jesus said back up on its head and a church culture that very much reflects the world. 
a culture that is hungry and thirsty for appearances, a, a culture that is that is that does not celebrate people who are meek and kind, but people who are strong and arrogant and brash. It's just flipped it right back over to where where churches and Christians look just like the rest of the world, operating by the same standards, same principles, and with the same values and, and understanding of success. And even Christians within churches who choose to live the way that Jesus told us to live can face persecution even from within the church. It's not always from outside. And so we need to stay strong even when that happens. Persecution can come from our government. Persecution can come from our our community. It can come from our school. It can even come from our own church. And so we have to be aware to be sure that we individually, and this is on us individually, that we are walking in the way that Christ told us to walk. For me to look at myself don't look at anybody else. As we're talking about this today, don't, don't sit in judgment of anybody else as we talk about this. Think about me. Think about you. And hold yourself up to the standard and say, am I all of these things? I, I'm willing to bet the answer is no. Because the answer is no for me too. Like, ish. You know, like, some of these things I feel like, yeah, doing pretty good there. And then some of them are like, ooh, yeah, it's a 50-50. You know, there's always work to be done. And it feels a little bit like juggling balls in a way. You know, you're trying to juggle eight balls, and you, you feel like you're juggling pretty good, and then you look down, and there's one on the ground, like you forgot about it. And so sometimes there are these things, there are these areas where we, our blinders get put on, or we just neglect them, or we don't think about them, or we slip back into the world. And so look at this list of things and hold yourself up to this list and say, is this who I am? Is this who I'm becoming? Because it is a process. And it is, it is hard because it is countercultural. Like I said, even the religious leaders of Jesus' day, if they'd made a list, it probably wouldn't be this. If they'd written this sermon, it might have said something more like, blessed are the pious. <laughs> blessed are the competent. Blessed are the powerful. Blessed are the respected. Blessed are the just. Blessed are the religious. Blessed are the zealous. Blessed are the favored. But those would be the opposite of what Jesus said. And the reality is we have Pharisees today. They just call themselves Christians. And so we want to make sure that that's not us. And that's up to every single one of us individually. Say, I am more concerned about what's happening here and my character as I become more like Christ than I am in what everybody else thinks of me and what's going on around me. Whether that's Christians judging me or whether that's people at work or people at school or what people in the community. I honestly don't care what any of them think about me. I care what God thinks about me. And if I care what God thinks about me, and I'm walking in those lines, then whatever happens, happens. And if it's persecution, it's persecution. And that's okay. In fact, I'll count that joy because it means that I'm on the right track. And so whatever that is for you, I want to encourage you right now to make a commitment to self-analysis, and to look over this list 
And even right now, so in a moment, I'm, I'm going to pray. You can use that time to pray and to confess things to God if you need to confess them to him or ask him to enlighten you and to show you if you haven't seen yet what it is here that he wants you to work on. We're going to sing a song. You can use that time. Maybe when you go home today, instead of just like flipping on the TV to watch the golf tournament or the race or whatever, uh, you go home and you open up your, your phone or your Bible, you open your Bible to Matthew chapter 5 and you look down through these and you look at each one very intentionally and very consciously and say, is that me? Is that me? Is that me? Is that me? Start doing this analysis and really walking through it. And then when you get together with your group this week, you're going to have an opportunity to talk about which one of these things really stood out to you, where you need to do work. It's an opportunity for you to confess to them. It's an opportunity for your group to have accountability together and to help each other through this, for you to find somebody else in in your group who's dealing with the same thing you're dealing with that you can walk together through this with. Take this and really squeeze, like think of it like a sponge, squeeze all of the water out of it. Don't let a single thing go here. Don't overlook a single thing that Jesus said so that you can continue becoming the person he wants you to be. So you can build your life on the solid foundation of the rock so when the winds come and the waves rise, your house will stand. All right, let's pray together. Let's go to him and spend some time. Lord, we want you to know first and foremost that we love you. You are good. You are our creator, and you've designed us to live a life in fellowship with you and in fellowship with each other. But we recognize that sin, our sin, broke that relationship and now infests and invades everything around us. We've recognized our spiritual weakness. And we've recognized that in that weakness, there's nothing we can do to earn our way back to you. But you in your grace and in your kindness sent your son Jesus to die on the cross, paying for our sin, rising on the third day. And so in our spiritual weakness, God, we cry out to you and we tell you that we need you. That we believe that you save us through Jesus Christ. And God, we understand that you you might be drawing someone to you today for the first time. For the first time today, they're recognizing that they need you, that they need to build their life on you, that they can't do it on their own. And so today, they're going to trust in Jesus for salvation for the first time. And whether, God, it's that person who's believing in you today, or it's any of us who made that decision years ago but walked through this daily life of being surrounded by sin in a world that's upside down from what you created. And as we walk through this, we need you to reorient us. We need you to flip us so that we can see the world and see ourselves the way you designed us to. God, comfort us in our mourning Help us to hunger and thirst for righteousness. To be peacemakers. 
Help us to be pure in heart and merciful. We need your spirit. We need you to show us where you want to develop us, where you want to change us, to prepare us for what's coming. So that when your kingdom comes, when you reward us, for our faithfulness. We hit the ground running because it's the way we've been living the whole time. God, we thank you so much for your love. We thank you that you've chosen to extend grace to us when you didn't have to so that we can experience the life that you created for us. And we want to fully embrace that so that we're ready for your kingdom to come, that we're ready for the storms that are coming here on earth, so that we can face hardship and persecution and everything on firm footing. God, as we process this, as we continue to seek, lead us, show us, strengthen us, And we'll begin with our recognition of our need for you. And stand in that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.